You are listening to audio from Citizens Church Almira. You can find more resources and learn more about our church at citizensalmira.ca. 86 people on the flight were killed in that crash. And the pilot miraculously survived, and so did the co-pilot uh, for a little while. The, pi- the co-pilot actually died on the way to the hospital. And the story of that flight was actually shrouded in mystery, and nobody even knew much about it for years. But someone, some Russian investigator actually snuck out photographs to the West, and they were published, and this was like a massive story. And they actually did a court case and did an investigation and wanted to see like what happened with this crash. And all this came to light of the pilot and his overconfidence. And as they did their study and as they did the the court case, basically it came down to, which is pretty obvious, the pilot had an overblown confidence in himself. The pilot had an overblown confidence in himself. Almost every week, as we've been looking at the Gospel of Mark, we've been seeing Jesus teaching some really basic and fundamental things to what it means to be a disciple. And along the way, probably many of us at different points, definitely in our text today, we've We've come up against things in our discipleship with Jesus, in our following with Jesus, and maybe the thought has come into your head, that won't happen to me. A little bit of overconfidence towards your following of discipleship and following of Jesus. And this morning, as we look at the story of the rich young ruler, that's probably going to come into your mind at some point, that what he's facing And what he's like up against won't happen to you. You'll be able to like get through life. You'll be able to follow Christ in a way that doesn't run into the same problems that the rich young ruler faces. But when we look at it, I hope and I think that you'll see yourself in the story over and over again. I know that I did. And so if you have a Bible, if you haven't turned there yet, I encourage you to turn to Mark chapter 10. And we're going to kind of do this message in two parts here. We're going to go over the text verse by verse and just kind of make sure that we understand what it has to say to us. And then in part two, we're going to like do a little bit of introspection and see what does that mean for me as a disciple, as a follower of Jesus. So in the story that we just heard, let's take this kind of in in small chunks and understand what it's saying to us. So in Mark 10... Starting in verse 17, reading verse 17 and 18, it says this. And as he was sitting, as he was setting out on his journey, that's Jesus, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. So onto the scene here where you have Jesus, remember in this In chapters 8, 9, and 10, Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. And in that time, now you've got this rich young ruler who is like really excited about Jesus. He's really intrigued by what Jesus is doing. It says that he comes and he runs to Jesus. And not only that, verse 17 says he knelt before him. So there's some sort of understanding in this 
young guy's mind that this rabbi or this teacher, maybe his stories of his miracles have gone out and this young guy has heard about it, but something has attracted him to Jesus. Jesus' life and his actions are attractive. And I mean, think about it. If you heard and if you maybe heard stories or maybe you even saw some of the things that Jesus did, the things that we've recounted in, in all of our other sermons in Mark, it's impressive. You'd be like, I want to go see this guy too. And so here he comes and he runs and he kneels before him and he calls him good teacher and he asks him a really great question. He says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? So like a good Jewish young man, he understands that the age that he's in is not the age of eternal life. He can still see people dying around him. He can still see people sick around him. This is not like God's fully ushered in kingdom just yet. And so he's asking how do I get to that stage? How do I like ensure that when eternity comes, when, when my day, when my bell rings, however you want to say it, when I'm done and I step into that next phase of God's kingdom into eternity, how can I guarantee that I have what I need in place to live that life? And so he asks Jesus. And Jesus on the spot doesn't even really answer the question, but he, he goes for the heart of some of the words and some of the thinking behind this young man. And he says, nobody is good but God alone. He's saying, do you actually, are you hearing what you're saying? You've come here and you've dropped in front of me and you've said, good teacher. But Jesus is saying, listen, in the Old Testament, when you see God's people interacting with prophets or with uh, you know, anybody who's doing God's will, maybe priests or leaders, Jesus is like, you know this as well as I do as a Jewish person, that the only being, the only person who's called good is God. And so how can you now come, fall down before me and call me good? Do you know exactly what you're saying? Do you understand those words, the depth of them? And maybe the answer is yes. I'm sure Jesus is thinking that would be great if you really understood that. But he's actually reflecting back to the young man who it is that you're saying is good. And do you understand what you're exactly saying there? Jesus goes on. Look at verse 19. He says this. You know the commandments. He's specifically talking about the Ten Commandments there. He says, you know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And he said to him, teacher, all of these I have kept from my youth. Jesus here is essentially asking, how did you get rich? Because in the ancient times, there was, there was basically the rich who was a small percentage of the population and then the rest of the working people. And the, generally the way that you got rich was by using your power, using your um, ability to um, oppress people in some way, either subtly or totally blatantly for your benefit so you can accumulate wealth. And Jesus is basically saying, okay, the Ten Commandments, which regulate your life. And if you look at the ones that Jesus lists, he's specifically going after ones that are relational in nature. So how you interact with people, rich young ruler, matters. 
And how did you come upon your wealth? How did you accumulate that? Have you followed the law in that regard in relating to people and connecting with them? And, and you know, how did you get your wealth? Was it through oppressing them? And the man says, verse 20, all of these I have kept from my youth. He says, I have followed the law. Those things that you've listed out there, I've done them. He's like the Apostle Paul, right? The Apostle Paul multiple times says, as the law you know, states to live, I did it. I followed the law. Now, it's not like these guys were sinless, but they were able to follow and do good. And, and this guy says to Jesus, I've done that. I've followed the law. I haven't oppressed people through you know, using my own power or using my own means in, in, in ways against the law, but I've followed them and I've done them rightly. And so the man says, Essentially, since my bar mitzvah, right, since I became a man, I have followed the law and I've done good. What is Jesus going to say? Verse 21. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go sell all that you have and give to the poor. And you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. Then verse 22 says, Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. One thing you lack, Jesus says. Which doesn't sound too bad, does it? Like if you went up to Jesus, and you fell before him on your knees, and he asked you some questions, and you're like, I'm doing it. I'm doing the work. And he says, okay, there's just one thing that you're lacking. One thing. I know I would be thinking, like, that's not too bad. You know, like, I could have 50 things, but we're just down to one. So there's one thing that I don't lack. Okay, that's, that's a step in the right direction. At least I know. But here we see that Jesus, not only does he say that there's one thing that he lacks, but Jesus also looks to the man, and it says, and this is a beautiful picture of God's heart towards people, he says that he loved the man. That he loved the man. That he was in that moment willing to tell him, yes, there's one thing that you lack, and, and we'll see in, in a minute that it's a significant thing. But he also looked at the man and he loved him. And you know, as you look at this text and you see this story, you can see that Jesus can see in this man a bit of himself even. There's, a, there's some parallels here between this rich young ruler and Jesus. And, I mean, they're not exactly parallel because Christ is infinite and this man is just a man. But Jesus can see that this young ruler is facing a similar question that Jesus faced. Jesus was also infinitely wealthy, had access to everything in all of eternity, and chose to give that all up. To live out God's will for him. And here now is this rich young ruler who has the same opportunity. Has great wealth. Has all kinds of power. Has all kinds of resource. And now he's given this opportunity to give that up. To fully, wholeheartedly follow Jesus. And so Jesus sees this moment. And where the parallel ends is the choice that is made, right? Jesus actually takes that choice 
and gives up his infinite standing and his infinite wealth. He gives that up to follow God's will for his life. And this man is stuck and he's not able to make that next step. And what's interesting here is that the man, it says, what does it say here at the end? It says that he disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. Your translation, may, maybe it says that he was grieved. He was sorrowful. His heart was down. You know that that word is actually the same word used for Jesus when he is in the Garden of Gethsemane. When Jesus is actually in the most difficult moment and he's about to take his steps toward the cross, and the thing that grieves him the most is the separation that's coming between him and God the Father. And so the word that's used there is that his heart is sorrowful or he's grieved. It's the same word. And so Jesus, again, like this young man, has like a parallel story, but it's not the same. This man is grieved because he's going to have to give up all of his possessions and he's choosing not to. And Jesus is grieved because he's choosing to do the hard thing. He's giving up his relational connection with God the Father. And so the same thing is happening to both of them, but very different outcomes. Very different. So verse 23, the story goes on. It says this, And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, then who can be saved? So Jesus says, listen, following me, being a disciple is a difficult task. It comes with self-sacrifice. It comes with saying no to things that society and the world says yes to. It says, it, it's, it's a calling of saying yes to Jesus, to the things that are everlasting in this present age and in the age to come, and saying no to the things that are temporal. And Jesus says, that's a hard calling. I love that Jesus is honest. Okay, Jesus doesn't like sugarcoat things. Jesus doesn't say, man, for some of you, this is going to be really easy. You're going to really like this. No, he says, this is a difficult calling. It is hard. And then he goes on to get maybe as close as we can get to Jesus cracking a joke. Okay, it doesn't seem like it in the context. It seems really serious here. But when he uses this hyperbole of a camel going through the eye of a needle, most scholars and commentators say, okay, Jesus is busting a joke here. Okay, he's, he's, we don't get the punchline. We're just like, sorry, not a first century. I'm not up on the comedy of the first century. But Jesus is using hyperbole. He's using humor to say, this is impossible, okay? This is so difficult. This calling is so hard. But he's doing that to get their attention, that it's actually, in the end, it's a work of God. It's a work that God does inside of us. And as we kind of give over and, and take steps toward being a disciple of Jesus, God continues to do these miracles, to do this work in our hearts and in our minds, and he keeps 
He keeps taking steps for us where we can't even go. And so he says that this work is an impossibility, but it's a work that God does. And so look at verse 27. It says, Jesus looked at them and said, With man it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. Again, Jesus kind of throwing that out there, just saying, here's what I do. I do the thing that is impossible. I do the thing that you can't understand. I do the thing that is hard. And that's the work of the kingdom. And, and he keeps showing them and keep telling them that. And it's hard for them to like really take that in and see it. And so he keeps repeating it. He just keeps saying it. There's like sermon after sermon. We've been seeing him say the same thing, that he is the God of the impossible. Then the story goes on again. And we're introduced to another Peter, right? Another line from Peter. Peter, it says, Peter began to say to him, see, we have left everything and followed you. Peter's great, right? Peter just says it like it is. He says, okay, the guy that just left, the rich young ruler, what he just wanted, we're doing it, Jesus. I don't know if he's wanting like a pat on the back or what he's wanting, but Peter's like, we're doing what he wants to do, but he couldn't do. We're the one, we're all in, Jesus. And what is Jesus then going to say? Jesus said, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. So Jesus says, okay, Peter, you did that. And part of what you're going to receive from that then is like this amazing blessing of what the kingdom of God brings. Now this is not like a, you know, there's modern day theological view of like, if I follow God's way, then I'm going to have material blessing that's going to come. Okay, it's known as like the prosperity gospel. So if I follow God's way for my life, if I do good for God, then what's going to come is kind of like a cash in, right? I'm going to like get all kinds of wealth. I'm going to have all kinds of business advantages. All these positives are going to come into my life. All this good stuff. That kind of view is rampant in Africa. If you've ever gone to Africa, it's also rampant in North America. It's all over the world. It's really appealing to think if I just follow God's law, he's going to give me all kinds of stuff. But what Jesus is saying here is you're going to receive the true blessings of the kingdom of God, which are like this family kind of benefit of people in the context of maybe your local body of believers, or maybe even broader, who become family to you, who become brothers and sisters. You end up expanding your network of homes that you can go to, places that you can be a part of. Also, part of that, did you, did you catch that right in there? It comes with persecutions. It comes with that as well. That's a part of the bundle, okay? You get all kinds of brothers and sisters. You get homes now where you can enjoy meals with people. But coming along with that, with the kingdom of God, with those blessings, is also persecutions and hardships as you stand up with Jesus. And then he ends by summarizing his teaching, which he's been summarizing for the last couple of chapters 
in verse 31. He says, but many who are first will be last and the last will be first. There's your principle of the kingdom of God, that the way that God is doing things is in reverse to what we would understand them to be from a human standpoint. God does the opposite of what we would naturally think that he should be doing. So this text here that we've just gone over, kind of briefly touched on, is one of those texts that is like in the category of difficult text to teach. So you might have gone to a church before. Maybe they're like, these are like hot button issues or these are like the difficult texts of the Bible. This one might have been in there, okay? And the reason why this one is in there is because we all love our stuff. All of us. And I'll tell you, this, this one definitely has hit me this week as well because, you know, we are in the midst of finishing our basement. And actually yesterday I was like moving all kinds of, things from one room to another. You know when you're renovating and you have to like keep moving things around? Honestly, yesterday I just wanted to burn everything. So I had the opposite problem of what this text is talking about. I was just like, I'm done with all this stuff. My hip was hurting. I was like, man, I'm getting old. You know, it was just like too much stuff. But probably all of us have like maybe like a literal list or we have like a mental list of things that we just, we just want them. We want to like buy something. Maybe you're like, you're really searching for something specific that you want to buy. I was thinking this week, I'm, you know, I have like a record player. So I'm often looking for records and I've been looking for this one record, which is like a three album record by George Harrison. Really, you know, hard to find. It's like $100 online. I'm just trying to scheme, like, how can I get this, like, LP? And, and then I was like, oh, yeah, and the title of it is All Things Must Pass Away. So I was like, that's kind of ironic, right? But there's, like, all, there's some sort of, like, longing for stuff, and we all have that. Like, it's not necessarily a bad thing, but it's something that is just driving us, that we have something we want and want to earn. And so a teaching like this is really difficult. It's really hard. And it's not just difficult for those of us who are wealthy. It's from the the poor down to the wealthy. Everybody has this desire to accumulate and to get more and to buy more and to earn more. Okay, there's just like this drive that we all have. And so when we look at the scriptures, actually, interesting, we, we see that wealth is not necessarily the problem. There's all kinds of biblical characters that are extremely wealthy. You look in the Old Testament and you've got a person like Job who has massive amounts of wealth. And and yes, in the story, he loses his wealth. But by the end, he gains it all back again, more than he had in the beginning. You look at the life of Abraham and you're like, here is a guy who had flocks and massive wealth and he had servants and a huge family. This is someone who was extremely wealthy. Solomon is another king of great wealth. Even Peter in our story here had a business with his father and they had a boat. Okay, like that's a big deal. They had a boat and they were able to go out fishing. They were wealthy. Matthew is a tax collector who's probably taken off this, you know, in different places, taking extra cash. He's got all kinds of money. So wealth is not necessarily this great evil. And it's not something that anybody who's wealthy, you know, God just like smashes them. 
But the thing that's difficult in the teaching here today is twofold. On one hand, Jesus comes to this man and he gets specific about what is actually being a barrier for him. He's saying, your stuff, can you give it up to follow me? And the rich young ruler, his answer is, no, I can't. So there's that one issue. Our stuff can actually create a barrier between us and God. But then Jesus goes on and he gets even more broad in his proclamation. He says, it's really difficult for wealthy people to get into heaven. He just makes a full-on blanket statement, you know? So in one case, he's really specific for the rich young ruler. But on the other hand, he's also really broad in his application, saying general wealth is going to be a potential stumbling block for people to get into the kingdom of God. But the problem with all of this is that we think we're not rich. We think somebody else is rich. We think like, you know, like some sheiks in the Middle East are rich or like Elon Musk. Like that's, we think it's got to be like in the billions. Until you're in the billions, you know, you're not really wealthy. And so we don't count ourselves in even in this story. But can I tell you, the story of the rich young ruler is the story for us. You are the rich young ruler. I am the middle-aged young ruler, okay? I'm like, whatever your age category, this story is for us. We are the rich. And I don't even need to know your you know, your bottom line to, to be able to kind of say that broadly, not only is that true from the story here, but it's true, like, we're probably the richest people percentage-wise on the planet and maybe even in history. Just the fact that we have, like, most of us, steady work, steady income coming in. Most of us own at least one vehicle. Many of us at least pay a mortgage on a home, okay? Or at least rent an apartment or something. Even if you lost your job, we live in a country that will pay you money as you look for another job. If you can't fill your cupboards with food, this community alone will be a support to you and help you do that. And if we suddenly don't do that, there's like places in town here where you can go and they will give you food. There is so many layers of wealth that we live with. So, this text is really important for us because Jesus is saying wealth is a potential barrier to you being a disciple of Jesus. John Mark Comer puts it this way, Jesus isn't teaching that poverty is the ideal way to live, but he is calling into question the assumption that wealth is the ideal way. So Jesus is challenging us with that. Because our natural assumption is like, okay, if I just had a little bit more, I could like do more for Jesus. I could like really like enter into this discipleship with like 100%. And Jesus is saying, actually, you're on the precipice of a barrier between me and being a disciple of me. In the book of Revelation, Jesus is writing to seven churches and two churches are like contrasting with each other. So to the letter to Smyrna in Revelation 2, Jesus writes this, I know your tribulation and your poverty, and then in brackets, but you are rich, 
and the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are of the synagogue of Satan. And then a few, just one chapter later, to the church in Laodicea, he writes this, For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. You see that contrast there? It's pretty blatant. It's pretty easy to see. One group is like in poverty, and Jesus is saying, I see your poverty, but there's like wealth there. And the other group thinks they have it all. They've got great wealth, and actually what's happening is they're pitiable. They're blind to it. They're naked, even though they probably are dressed in the greatest clothes. And Jesus says, do you see this? Do you see this contrast? Don't assume that wealth is the way that brings you the true prosperity that you need, that brings you into alignment with God, with what God actually has for you, the vision that he has for your life. So money tends to give us most things that our Western society thinks are valuable and helpful and probably things that in, in some ways they can be good. They're things that we would want our kids to be doing. So it helps us with independence. It helps us actually gain power. It helps us control our lives, or so we think. It helps us with self-determination. It helps us with future planning, with security, with what we would call things that are fun. It helps us to get new things. It helps us, like, there's a lot of things that we could say, this is what money gives to you. And Jesus says, Watch out, actually. Watch out. The things that the world says, this is what you need. This is what it's good. It becomes a barrier between you and your discipleship, your apprenticing of Jesus. In Matthew, Jesus puts it this way. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where, and this is, this is the important line right here. This is the takeaway for the whole message. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Here's what Jesus is concerned about. What is taking your heart? What is capturing your heart? What is it that you really long for? What is it when you have it, you are most satisfied? And he's saying, we are laid before us this, this option of this thing, this stuff, or my discipleship with Jesus, my following of Jesus. And the, the result is then the kingdom of God and all the fruit that comes with the kingdom of God. And so wealth becomes this idol that we long for. And so the rich young ruler, in essence, was breaking the first commandment, right? He's, he's showing us what he was truly worshiping. And Jesus, with that one question, you know, that one thing you lack, he's like, do you see it? The one thing you're actually worshiping, the idol that you have, is actually the wealth that you are accumulating. So, we live in this world where we are constantly faced with the temptation to grab wealth, to grab a hold of it. And yet, 
God continually moves towards the places where the poor, either where the poor exist or where people have a heart or a leaning towards a way of poverty. And so we are not like other religions that have a temple that we need to go to. You know, we don't have to do a pilgrimage to Jerusalem or something like. We don't have to go to places. God moves where he wills. And over the centuries, God has actually moved with poverty and moved where people have sought after him. And so the center of Christianity has gone from like the Middle East to North Africa, and then it's shifted to Europe, and then it's shifted over to North America, and now it's shifting again to where the, the majority of Christians, the vast majority, live in sub-Saharan Africa and in South America, places where poverty is extremely high. Jesus moves into those places and God is actually able to do his work and to build his kingdom. You know that in 1900, 1% of Africa was Christian and now over 50% are Christian in Africa. God is on the move. He goes to places where people are in sync with his vision for the kingdom of God. So what should our mindset be when it comes to wealth. And let's, we'll just close with this. We'll, let's bring this down to practicality, okay? So our mindset when it comes to wealth, let me just highlight three things. And the first is this, is to see money as stewardship. See money as stewardship. The money that you have right now and the money that you will earn is God giving to you to steward for a little while. He may, give you, he may give you 40 years to live. He may give you 80 years to live. Maybe someone's going to live to 100 years. Who knows? Maybe over 100. Those years that you live, the money that you earn, all the things that you have, God is letting you use those things. It's good for us to understand that. God is letting you use those things while you are here and God's expectation that he says over and over again is that he expects a return on his investment. And what he is giving to you, he expects you to use for his purposes, for his kingdom. So as Christians, we need to be in tune with what God is doing. And what we have, we want to steward and we want to use for his purposes, for his will in this world. And so whether it means we have to you know, buy a vehicle or we have to buy a home or we have to buy clothes or food. All those things are a part of living. Evidently, if you live in Elmira, you have a home that's worth around a million dollars now, okay? That's just, that's the world we live in, okay? We have to buy these things. We have to live. We have to do those things. But in the midst of it, we are stewards. And we keep this perspective in mind that we are holding these things for a time and we want to use them for God's glory. Secondly, live with a poverty mindset, okay? The goal, again, is not for us to be impoverished, but is to, it's to be thinking, what could we do without, actually, so that we could use our wealth for God's purposes? Um, Ronald Sider's book, Rich Christians in an Age of Hunger, great book if you want to be deeply challenged. He has, like, a list of, like, a bunch of things that you can give up so that you can actually 
spend less money on things and give more money to the work of God in different ways. And he says this. I just wrote down five. He says, question your own lifestyle and not your neighbor's. Number two, determine how much of what you spend is for status and eliminate such spending. Number three, refuse to keep up with clothing fashion. Fast fashion, okay? Just say, I'm done. Okay, I'm going to create my own fashion. Number four, enjoy what is free. There's a lot in this world that you can enjoy that costs nothing. Enjoy what is free. And number five, if you have kids, give your children more love and time rather than more things. Give them time, love, meals together, the things that they truly and that all of us truly long. What we discover the longer we live is the things that we really want, the things that we really need are those simple things like love, joy, food around a table, time together. Those are the things. The things that you can't actually buy are the things that we truly want and the things that God has made us to exist within. So live with a poverty mindset. And then lastly, give as a discipline of the faith. So we've been talking in the Gospel of Mark as we've been, I don't know, it was like 20, 25 sermons we're into now. All along the way, we've been saying there are disciplines to the faith. You will not naturally do these things as a follower. So you need to work them into your life. You need to grow in them and train your mind towards reading the scriptures, times of prayer, times of silence before God and hearing from him. And giving is one of those as well. I always encourage people, firstly, give to the local church. Give to the place that you you know the vision of it. You know the people of it. You're committed to it. That's the place where you firstly give. But then you find other places, maybe organizations or like places like Compassion Canada, where you can give your money for the for the good of someone else. Or maybe it's a missionary that you know, that you're confident in the work that they're doing, in the kingdom work, wherever they are, and you give your money to them. When you part from your money, when you give your wealth, you discover that you're actually entering into what God has for you. You're saying, God, I'm not sovereign over what you're doing. You are. So I'm going to part with this resource that you've given to me so that you can do the work. Use people. Use organizations. Do whatever you need to do. But I'm going to give up this because I know that you're actually sovereign. You are actually at work. So give as a discipline of the faith. I have, um, let's just, I'll close with this. I have a number of little gifts still that our kids gave to us when they were younger. If you have little kids, even if you don't, maybe you're like the uncle and aunt or something. And little kids just like give with this deep sense of joy and love. And they'll come with like a little craft or a little something. And they're just like, so excited to give this thing to you. It's just all, it's 100% love and joy, okay? Th- that's what Jesus is talking about. When he, remember at the end of the sermon last week where he talked about the kingdom of God is like these little children. They're not like hampered by what we're having. Kids, they don't realize that they don't actually own anything, right? And we don't tell them as parents. 
Like, you're cutting my paper and you're using my scissors. Like, they don't own any of it, okay? They think they own it all. They think it's all theirs. They don't own nothing. And they bring this gift to you like they've sacrificed for it. It's just 100% joy and love. And you're just, you take it in and you keep that for years and years. I got a whole box full, okay, of these wonderful, because it's done in love. It's what the Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians 8, verse 1. He says this, We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God. That's the driver, the grace of God, that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, and he says, I can testify, and beyond their means, of their own accord. Nobody forced them to do it. No coercion. No, I have to do this to be a good member. Just total love and joy because of the grace of God. May that be our final word when it comes to wealth. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for all that you've given to us. Thank you for your grace and your mercy. And Lord, for all that we have, even this building that we get to use, Lord, it's just all because of your grace. And may we respond in turn as disciples being a generous people for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.